0: Welcome back to Everything You Need Is Inside, where we talk about hard things that become easier as we learn to trust ourselves along the way. So today's episode is with Jay Godfrey, who is a former fashion designer turned wellness entrepreneur, founded New Shama Clinics in New York City, all about transformative experiences, facilitating safe and effective psychedelic treatments for mental wellness. Supported by medically trained professionals with decades of experience. As of now, Mushama focuses particularly on ketamine assisted therapy. I will let Jay tell you more and how he got where he is by starting where he was. Today, we have on Jay Godfrey from Mushama Wellness, based in New York City. I think I've known Jay. Just in passing over the years, and I want to talk about so Jay sort of transition from being a fashion designer, a well-known fashion designer, to getting into this, this new consciousness, psychedelic wellness movement. And uh let him tell you more about that. So let's just start there. Talk to me about how you got where you are, being where you are.
1: Great question. Starting as an investment banker, then becoming a fashion designer, and then going into the consciousness world or the world of psychedelics or the world of rebirth, whatever you'd like to call it, isn't exactly what most people would think is a normal career path. But it certainly made a lot of sense to me. In 2015, I started going to traditional talk therapy. And there was so much about it that I enjoyed and that did a lot for me. But because my ego was so entrenched, the efficacy of the talk therapy really fell short of what I had hoped for not because my therapist wasn't good. She was amazing, mm. but rather my ego was so entrenched and I was so good at telling stories that really weren't all that real to my therapist. And after about three years of spending, I don't know, something like $350 a week, every week, 52 weeks a year times three years, I looked back and reflected on, okay, I've spent all this money in time and what do I have to show for it? And because my ego was so entrenched i really had some great strategies and some coping mechanisms but i really didn't have that inner feeling of worthiness or confidence and something just felt off and so a friend of mine from a really unexpected place had been working with plant medicine for many years and you know gave me a copy of michael pollan's how to change your mind in 2019 And it was very, very strange for me to read a book about drugs because I wasn't into drugs. You know, I really didn't do any. I think, you know, the the worst thing I did was try pot during college, but that really wasn't so crazy. And uh, so why was I reading a book on LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and ibogaine and other psychedelics? Well, to me, after putting, you know, finishing Paulin's book, it was really clear to me that These molecules and compounds were really the next frontier, the major disruption that was well overdue for how people work with their mood disorders like depression, anxiety, and PTSD and addiction. So I embarked along with my wife actually on doing plant medicine journeys starting in August, 2019. And we were doing them every month in guided with a uh, facilitator. And our lives have never been the same since. Our marriage has never been the same since our children have never been the same since they look forward to seeing us after we do these experiences. They're not there, of course, but, Mm -hmm. and it's really awakened the spirit within us that has been covered up for so very, very long.
0: Well, so then with that, I mean, and you mentioned to just rewind a second, I guess, or even to finish your sentence, the spirit that's been covered up, I would say by ego, because that's sort of where you mentioned in the past And I want to just dive into your definition of that, because I think there is this word ego that's hovering and people think of their ego as like, oh, he has a big ego. But really, like, what does that mean in this consciousness world?
1: Yeah, great question. So we're born unconditioned, innocent, full of wonder, full of joy. When you look at a child or a baby or an infant or a toddler who tries ice cream for the first time and have this look of, wow, that's unconditioned. And then something happens to us. We usually in this world call it a wound or a trauma and things start to change. We start to become guarded and ego starts to develop. And what is ego? Ego is there to protect us from having that wound occur again. So people exhibit their ego through what I call or what my teacher called Jevit, which is J-E-V-E-D, justification, explanation, validation showing of evidence and domination. And then there's another one, which is always good, which is righteousness. And whenever you're acting in those behaviors, they are manifestations really of fear that you're going to get wounded again. So what is great about psychedelics, all of them, is that they allow you to be in an experience where your ego gets to dissolve. And when your ego dissolves, you get to play witness or observer to yourself, to your true self. So those suppressed or repressed feelings and traumas that you've had for so long, many of which come from childhood, you're allowed to look at sober-minded in a way. You're allowed to look at them as the observer and not have judgment and not have any strong feelings for them because you look at them for what they are and you recognize where some of your patterns and your shadows have come from. And it was within this work, I had a, a journey in May 2020. My fashion business was really, really struggling at the time. I was really struggling at the time personally. And I recognized that I had been chosen. I don't know how, but i had been chosen to be experiencing these plant medicines and that I should not take this responsibility lightly Mm. and that I was uniquely qualified to put together a team to allow these medicines to be utilized in the here and now in the context of an above ground legal framework.
0: Hmm. So when you got that sort of calling, when you got that download, you know, outside of your ego, apart from who you thought you were, right? Like business J, relationship J, but just J in the world without all of the conditioning, void of ego. And you hear this, like, did you answer right away? Did you question it? What was what happened then?
1: There was no questioning. It hmm. felt viscerally like a calling, and. It hasn't gone away since. I wake up every day and I still feel like it's my calling. And that experience happened almost two years ago. And what I love about this work, meaning guided journey work with psychedelics, is that it really gets down and peels away the layers of you that aren't you. Mm
2: -hmm. So people
1: always ask me, like, if I try this, will I be different? I was like, no, you'll be more of you which mm. means you're just going to peel the layers of conditioning off of you to get to your essence eventually. Right. And we are all love and we are all compassion and wonder mm. and all these beautiful things that are underneath all these layers of conditioning.
0: Right. And I think so undervalued because we've become so closely identified rather with what we do and what we have as opposed to who we are and who we are is so often hid behind the ego, the definition of self, as opposed to really at our core, like you said, at our essence, that childlike love, compassion, grace, you know, that we are all capable of, but because of the wounding, because of the trauma, because of the armor we end up carrying, we become something else. So I love how you put that. It's really about stripping away as opposed to, I guess, like you said, becoming more of who you are as opposed to changing. You are becoming you, you are you,
1: Yeah, it's like a reintroduction to your factory settings. We Mm -hmm. weren't born sarcastic, angry, jealous, wanting. None of these things. These are conditioned things. So you get back to the unconditioned self and you recognize viscerally the beauty that comes from within,
2: Hmm. And once
1: you start to recognize your divine source and the God within you, you start to see it in others as well. Hmm. And suffering really falls by the wayside after, after having those experiences.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you knew a little bit of my journey and my story and seeing with you, but it's so interesting, the lens that you now see through clearly. It's not a different lens. It's just clear. It's just without the judgment, the comparison Less fear. It's really from a place of purity, and in that, I give you so much credit for receiving the calling, answering the calling, and I think we're speaking to how it's changed your life. But I want to understand: once you got that calling, you open. How did this work? So you open nushama. I want to know what nushama means and what it. Tell me about it. What is it? Sure.
1: So we opened nushama with the idea of creating legal psychedelic journeys above ground using ketamine through an IV. And the beauty of, of an IV ketamine journey vis-a-vis psilocybin, MDMA, DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, there's really no waiting for drop-in. So you're in your experience with about 90 seconds to two minutes. The name Nushama really has kind of a double meaning to it. First, it's a take on the Hebrew word neshama, which means soul. And we look at this work as, as soul work. You know, it gets down to who you truly are. It is also a take on the words new shaman. We don't fancy ourselves as shamans, but we do recognize that in the medical context, psychedelics are going to be used for psychiatric mood disorders. And the shaman was the original plant medicine healer. And so we stand on their shoulders, 6,000 years of research in the Amazon and in places like in Africa, all over the world where people have used plant medicines to heal from within.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. And I want to piggyback on that and just I think include a disclaimer because we'll go into these substances and talk about ketamine and how it's legal. And that's what you're working with now. But I think overarching, because as we discussed when we jumped in, there's so much inquiry into this world and this new revolution and consciousness and wellness and the amount of inquiry I get of like, how do I do it? Where do I get it? Et cetera. I think we we should just touch on the fact that like. This is soul work, but it needs to be handled with kid gloves, right? Or white gloves in your sense. So, so above ground, legal, what you're doing now. And I guess maybe walking through the process so that it can also, it, it sort of will make it less scary for people more to understand. And also the understanding around like this stuff isn't stuff to like, it's not Play Doh. Like it's, right, it's real. Right.
1: We refer to this as sacred work in the spaces where you do this work as sacred spaces and it should be treated as such. You're going for a deep dive into your soul, and it's not something to acquire like a Chanel bag or a a Ferrari. It's something to discover and explore and be open to. So our process is really simple, although detailed. We have people, we refer to them members, not patients, mainly because we don't believe there's anything wrong with people we believe that they've just been conditioned and they've layered on these layers of ego that are preventing them from being their truest selves, preventing them from being, whether you look at the Kabbalistic way of being the light or Hindu way of of being the highest self, or just in plain old English, their truest self. So somebody will reach out to us, whether being from a doctor referral, therapist referral, or people who are just interested in psychedelic medicine will express interest in doing a a group of ketamine sessions. Our protocol calls for six infusions over the course of three or four weeks. Some people stretch it out to six weeks, which is often logistically more convenient. The very first thing we do is we do a medical intake. So the patient will meet with one of our physicians, and the purpose being to determine what the member's kind of medical history is, what the family history is, what medications they've been on, what above ground or below ground experiences they might have had with psychedelics, if any, what they hope to get out of this, what their intentions are, setting expectations, and then once they're cleared, and, and the only indications that they wouldn't be allowed to proceed if they're schizophrenia, an ongoing manic episode that they're in the middle of, or uncontrolled hypertension. But beyond that, generally people pass. They then go on to a psychiatric evaluation with a psychiatric nurse practitioner to either diagnose or reconfirm a diagnosis that might've been made by another practitioner and really to prepare them. And what does preparation mean? It's really something that's so important in the context of set and setting in the, as part of the psychedelic experience. Set really refers to the mindset that the member goes into their journey with. And setting refers to obviously the physical setting and surroundings that the member is doing their journey in. Preparation is so important because there's a lot of people that are bewildered or scared of what they read about psychedelic experiences. But it's really important for them to to, to understand that if you see a doorway, go through it. Mm. If you see something that makes you afraid, you know, just sit with it, breathe through it. If there's something physically uncomfortable, sit with that too. And what you start to see is these things, pain, suffering, emotions, they're like clouds that come and go. And that's one of the beautiful things that if you prepare somebody, there's really no such thing as a bad trip if they're well-prepared. Mm. It's more that a challenging experience that they really can learn from. And then once they're prepared and they have their psychiatric evaluation, then they can hop into the journeys. And what does that mean? They you know come to one of our, one of our three centers in the New York City area. And they have all their vitals taken to make sure everything's cool. They're given a blanket and they sit in one of our zero gravity chairs, a custom playlist with kind of noise canceling beats headphones and an eye mask. And, you know, the medical team hooks them up to the IV. We have one of our integration specialists come in and lead the patient through some breath work, a meditation and some intention setting. Hmm. And the journey itself is about one hour. After about 15 minutes of kind of coming back to this plane of consciousness, the integration specialist comes back in and really doesn't play therapist or coach, but is just there to help glean a key insight from what was experienced and help that person really, if they're getting into storytelling or getting into negative thought patterns, it's really about helping that person reframe their experience. Yeah. And so this thing happens over the course of six sessions and um, the outcomes have been mind blowing.
0: I can imagine. I mean, just to, to speak on the art of the process, which is really beautiful, I think. And what you're doing above ground is really important because it sounds like you're doing the intake like a traditional doctor's office. You're saying, what's up? What can we talk about? Where have you been? You know, what are you carrying? Okay, let's unpack that. Then you do the session, which is handled with a lot of TLC and a beautiful setting. And then there's, you know, some sort of integration, as you said, after to unpack if there is a story around it, because I think it's very quick to experience something, then automatically assign a judgment or a comparison or some sort of story, as you said, around it, that may or may not be true. And I think that's the most challenging part of the psychedelic process is the integration, because it's really about understanding what you've experienced and allowing it to then become a part of you, as opposed to a part of you that's still separate, like really bringing it into, you know, the the story that is our life, you know? So I think that is both incredible and helpful, but I would say that For me, how I found psychedelics, it was very random and I didn't go this route, right? I smoked five MEO DMT in Janis Joplin's old apartment in the Chelsea Hotel, September 2020. And that was, as you said, it's what you find in ayahuasca. And it was probably the most extreme way you could start. And it was one of those things where I tend to be an extremist. And what was uncovered to me, because it was such a quick process was so much and I didn't understand it and I didn't know what to do with it. So disclaimer, don't do what I did. <laughs> if you are interested in this work, I think what you're doing in Nishama is so beautiful in that way because psychedelics are available. You can talk to someone who talk to someone who has a friend and it's starting to be more and more like available underground. But the way that you're doing it is offering a process that is supported, that has, you know, education around it.
2: Right. And, and look,
1: safety is a big thing. You know, I'm a big believer that psilocybin and MDMA will be legalized in the coming years. And, and they should be legalized. But they're also safety is such an important thing. Mm. So there's a lot of people that do these molecules underground without any psychospiritual supervision. Somebody who can be there who can sit with them and help them navigate the choppy waters. Right. And then there's also not enough medical screening. And when you start to consider that 46 or 47% of Americans have hypertension, and that is a contraindication for most psychedelics, we are big believers, and we insist upon it, obviously, as part of our protocol, that everybody has to go through a medical intake to ensure safety. We do not want the third wave of psychedelics to have the same result as the second wave. And we do believe that the drug war is, it went way too far. But at the same time, it's really, really important to keep people safe, both on a psycho-spiritual perspective and a medical perspective.
0: Yeah. I think it's such a gift that you had this calling and you're providing this care. Again, in my experience, it was like 5-MEO-DMT. I was left with so much information. I was so confused. And then a week later, I went in my first real ceremony with MDMA and psilocybin. And I pulled up, you know, severe trauma and I had no support. So I left that experience empty, afraid, like the worst feeling I think you could probably imagine with no one to turn to. I didn't know if it was true, all of these different things. So again, to say like, don't do what I did. (laughs) Nushama is providing this care that is so beautiful. And there are other comparables. I'm sure I know that you guys are just in New York City. I'm curious as to, I know why ketamine, because it's legal, but how does ketamine differ from these other substances we're talking about, like specifically?
1: Right. So start with ketamine. You're right. its legal. It's been legal since 1970. Most people, when they think of ketamine, think of one of two unfortunate things. One is a horse tranquilizer and the other is kind of a street drug that is common amongst the finance community. It has been legalized as an anesthetic since 1970. It's an analgesic as well for pain relief. What most people don't know is that in operating rooms across the world, Ketamine is the go-to for pediatrics. So when my daughter broke her wrist a couple summers ago and she needed to have wrist surgery at nine years old, they gave her something like eight to 10 times as much ketamine to anesthetize her without even thinking about it as we would give a grown adult to occasion an ego-dissolving journey-like experience. One of the great things about ketamine, other than it being legal, is it's super safe. And it's been tested on tens of thousands of people in clinical trials and millions of people in operating rooms and even on the battlefields of the Vietnam War. It was widely used as something that could provide immediate pain relief for people who were wounded. How does it compare to other psychedelics? Well, you know, first, all psychedelics do one thing consistently, which is they provide a pathway for ego dissolution. So people can get A journey like ego-dissolving experience with ketamine, they can do so with psilocybin, ibogaine, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, any of those molecules, which is great. It differs in that it does provide a shorter journey. Ketamine is about an hour long, whereas psilocybin is up to six hours. Ibogaine can be up to 36 hours. LSD is 12 MDMA is somewhere between three and a half and five hours, depending on how much you take. So there's certainly a convenience and time factor between ketamine and the others. And even when the others are legalized, specifically MDMA and psilocybin in probably the two to five-year range, you'll still see ketamine used for a lot of indications where psilocybin and MDMA cannot because of its safety profile.
0: Hmm. And so I know that you you said over six sessions over a course of six weeks, like, I can already feel people being like, well, what if I just want one?
1: Right. We get people who ask, well, let me just try it first. And our typical response to that is, well, it's like having your doctor tell you you need a quadruple bypass. And you say, nah, I'll just do a double or a triple. This is evidence-based medicine. Mm. And we follow the research. Dr. Evgeny Kripitsky, who sits on our advisory board, is a Russian psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist discovered in the 1980s that as people were anesthetized for their surgeries that like for physical ailments like broken bones they came out with a rapid antidepressive response and he did research over the next 30 years and figured out that six was the optimal number of treatments to do in order to provide remission from depressive symptoms Mm -hmm. so that means People can go from major depression to minor moderate to minor or minor to none at all, depending on how much work they're really willing to put in between sessions and, and after the treatment is done.
0: So then with that said, I know we talked to ideal patient and you said anyone that doesn't have manic instances or schizophrenia. Beyond that, is it someone who's already done some sort of self-work or what is the ideal patient beyond that? Is there one?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, it always helps to do some work you know, to understand triggers, to understand shadows that, pe- that you might have. But I don't think it's essential. We have a lot of people come to us who've been on antidepressants or SSRIs for years, sometimes decades. And one of the most common thoughts that gets shared with us is we just want the noise to stop because depression and specifically treatment resistant depression is really an indication that manifests itself through continuous rumination loops. And people just want that noise and that loop to stop. And ketamine is a wonderful tool for making it stop. So some people come out of their experiences with not a lot to report, which is, I saw this or I experienced that. Well, some people do. Some people explain in such great vivid detail how they saw. But some people report, you know what was so beautiful about that experience was the noise just stopped for the first time. And what is amazing about that is as you do it throughout your six sessions, it really creates a muscle memory so that our members can know that they can go back to that stillness and go back to that noiseless world free of rumination.
0: Right, that it, it, it actually is possible to be, to have some sort of inner quiet, I would say. And I think that's just another muscle that we learn to flex. And I think that this actually facilitates the ability to do so, as you said. So in the beautiful New York Times article, you know, there was some mention of like, is ketamine addictive? What is your thought on that?
1: It's another great question that we get all the time. So ketamine can be addictive. Uh, Dr. David Nutt, who works at the Imperial College of London, had a graph that very famous called it ranks drugs based on harm score, the Mm -hmm. harm to yourself and harm to others. At the very low end of the graph, meaning very low harm, very low potential for addiction are the classic psychedelics, specifically mushrooms being or, or psilocybin being the, be the least harm, closely followed by LSD. And at the very, very top, the greatest harm and the great not only to the person themselves but to others was alcohol, opiates, heroin, methamphetamine. They, surprisingly, they didn't put sugar in there, but that's highly addictive and harmful. And then somewhere in the middle, there's a number of other drugs or medicines. One of them is cannabis, which is slightly more addictive than ketamine. So that's one point. Another point is ketamine is only addictive counterintuitively at the low end of the dose range. So we administer typically 0.5 milligrams per kilogram to about two milligrams per kilogram for each Mushama member, depending on where they are in their journeys. Generally, below 0.5, somewhere around 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, the experiences can be quite euphoric, Mm. which sounds nice, but that's what really provides that potential for addiction. As you go up in dose, it really doesn't provide a euphoric experience at all. It does provide an inward exploratory experience that can be nice, but can also be very, very challenging like many other psychedelics. So I think the potential for abuse, A, happens at the lowest end of the range, typically with street doses of ketamine. And number two, it almost never, ever happens when done under medical supervision.
0: Mm, Okay. That's helpful. And I guess, like you said, alcohol, sugar, all of these other substances, I mean, everything's addictive, you know, can be addictive, right? (laughs) If we do anything too much, good things, bad things. It's, I think it's sort of how we handle ourselves in relation to everything else. Right. It comes with
1: intention too. We work very, very hard and spend a lot of time with our members to help them set intentions. And one of those intentions quite often is beating addiction. Mm.
2: So we all
1: have people who come in with opiate, like Oxycontin addictions or cocaine addictions, or maybe they smoke too much cannabis. We've had, Plenty of those types of patients, and their intention is to beat their addiction using ketamine. Mm. So, some of the greatest scientific work, some authored by Dr. Kropitsky, is how ketamine is a great tool to beat addiction.
0: And so, with that, it also, the article so beautifully mentioned that ketamine is often used for chronic pain to beat eating disorders and also, you know, OCD or other sort of disorders. How does that work? Like for eating disorders specifically? how could ketamine treatment help disorder?
1: So let me preface by saying that most of the research on ketamine for mood disorders has been done by on both depression and addiction. There have been some research studies regarding obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, as well as eating disorders. So we look at them as a, as a basket of mood disorders. And while there is indeed evidence and the evidence is growing, most of the research has been done on depression and addiction.
0: Hmm. So when someone comes in and after they get their medical evaluation and they have you know, some sort of addiction or depression, like you said, as long as they don't have you know, manic episodes or you know, schizophrenic, that this is something that can help with everything else.
1: That's correct, that's correct. I mean, we're, we're also big believers in the, you know, to use the almost cliche terminology at this point that the body keeps the score. So, you know, whether it's an eating disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder, addiction, depression, anxiety, or PTSD, how the body is processing all this, both physiologically and psychospiritually are all manifestations of trauma. And so when you start to look at it through that lens, then you recognize that it's not just about the indication of depression or treatment resistant depression as, as they define it as failing to respond positively to two or more antidepressants. So we look at them as a basket and we look at them as all trauma informed and look at psychedelics as being unique tools to allow people to look at their traumas, re-experience them in, in a new way and transcend them.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, like, as I can't laud your work enough, but I think that's the most beautiful part about what you're doing and what psychedelics do is that, you know, we are so quick to label, oh, she has this disorder, she's on this medication, as opposed to looking at the why, you know, so like, not, you know, what's wrong with you. It's really about what happened to you. And in the word trauma, I think that it's such a triggering word that's become lesser, lesser, as it's being used more frequently. But trauma doesn't have to mean something that has completely derailing. It can be, you know, as, as minor as being called a name on the playground when you were young or
1: Absolutely.
0: falling and hitting your head or, you know, being made fun of for whatever it was, or it can be, you know, sexual assault or, you know, a very massive, you know, illness, whatever it is. That's why I think psychedelics are so powerful because it really gets to the root of the why. Why you've, you know, you have sort of grown this ego or why you are disordered in whatever way. And, and I think that what you're doing, that it is sort of given in this place of love in this, in this experience that really holds the member, it allows people to feel more comfortable. So that when these things come up, they aren't like, oh no, it's like, oh, okay, we can look at this and breathe through it and then understand it, potentially integrate it and then work with that as part of us, as a gift we were given and how we can use that in our favor as opposed to like a wound, an open wound.
1: Right. I I think the word trauma, as you said, is a little bit of a loaded term. But Mm -hmm. so I I kind of disarm it a little bit by calling things capital T or lowercase t traumas.
2: Mm -hmm. How
1: to see the capital T is the rape, the murder, the divorce in a family, a death in a family. Those are things that are kind of capital T traumas. But as you rightly said, there's a lot of lower, most of our traumas are lowercase T traumas. Mm -hmm. They could be anything from being called a name to not getting, you know, not making the fourth grade soccer team to, you know, having a, a disapproving look from a parent that could stick with you your entire life. And I'm just so grateful that there's tools out there that can treat underlying issues. Like these capital T or lowercase T traumas versus doing what medicine is, has done for so long, which is, oh, you've got depression. Well, OK, that just means you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. Here's an SSRI. Take this and it'll rebalance it. Well, got some news. In 1987, Prozac was developed. That was more than 30 years ago. If, and the, the incidence or the amount of use of SSRIs has gone up exponentially since Prozac was developed, but so has the diagnosis of depression. So I always like to ask people two things. If SSRIs work, why don't they work? And the second thing is, is if, if big pharma and the medical system wants to look at SSRIs as simply a chemical imbalance in one's brain, how does Big Pharma look at simple things like trauma or a lack of connection between human beings or, you know, the desire to have meaningful work and meaningful values?
0: Yeah. So and with that said, I think going back to where we started, this idea of how, you know, you were called to this work and it was because you were doing all of this work and you started seeing things in a different light. You know, your relationship changed. I can imagine your relationship as a father changed your relationship towards your own, you know, professional work, personal work. And I think it goes, you know, to this point of like, when you start seeing yourself differently, your cuts and bruises and big T, small T traumas, and you start to integrate that into a place of love as opposed to judgment, you know, comparing yourself or judging yourself for what happened to you and just sort of create this idea of yourself that actually is who you are, everything around you changes. So, you know, in the work that you did personally and the way that you pivoted from fashion designer to, you know, wellness, entrepreneur, psychedelic consciousness movement, you know, how has what you've discovered in yourself affected everything else around you?
1: What's interesting on a personal level, and I like the word distance, this work has created a distance for me
2: Hmm.
1: between stimulus and response. So prior to working with these sacred medicines, I really had a short temper and something would upset me and I'd lose my cool. I'd go ballistic almost immediately. Mm -hmm. I was well known for my temper. (laughs) And now I'm able to look at these situations with a lot more equanimity. i still have a lot of work to do if I'm being frank with you, but it's allowed me to pause and reflect And I ask myself, actually, who's talking? Is it the wounded child, the six or seven-year-old? Or is it 42-year-old Jay who is responsible and open? Mm. And so the level of distance between stimulus and response has really changed a lot of my relationships. But it's also one of the bigger challenges on the other side of doing this work is really understanding how the ego manifests itself in people. And so when things would upset me about people's behaviors prior to doing this. Now I have compassion for somebody who's yelling, even if they're yelling at me mm. or yelling at somebody else, because I, I now look at them through the lens of, wow, that person really must have struggled a lot or had something terrible happen to them for them to be in such fear and protection mode. Yeah. And so I think when you start to look at the world through the lens of loving and kindness and look at the world, through the lens of everybody has their story and their behavior is a manifestation of that story it changes a lot you don't really get into arguments as much as you used to you don't use words like hate to anybody you know even what's going on in the world today you know everybody's talking about you know this invasion of the ukraine i feel so sad for someone like vladimir putin because he must have gone through a torturous childhood yeah. in order to be behaving in such a way. You must um, be in
0: so much pain, just yeah. so much pain. Yeah.
1: This is not a manifestation of somebody who's strong. This is the manifestation of somebody who's trying to prevent themselves from being seen.
0: Mm. Yeah. I would say in all of this work, back to this idea of like, you can't see anyone else until you see yourself. And I think that is what this medicine provides and, I've been so privileged to have found it, you know, to sort of help me through all of the major transitions, but big T, small T in my life so that I can now see myself clearer so that I can have more compassion for the little girl that was in so much pain, right? And then seeing everybody else around me with love and also like in my own boundary setting, seeing people who are in pain and not letting them put their pain on me. You know, having that little distance, that not like less reaction, being like, okay, I see you. I don't know if you see me. It's okay if you don't see me, but we're going to stay here. We're going to keep ourselves grounded. And equanimity is a wonderful word for that, keeping your cool.
1: You know, there's a lot of God work Hmm. in psychedelics. And I don't mean it in the sense like I'm Jewish, I think you are as well. It isn't in the sense of like what you go to synagogue or somebody goes to church. It really helps you understand that you, As a human being, there's the God within you and you are in partnership with existence. Mm. And based on that, the ultimate barometer for things, whether they're good or bad or worth having a relationship that's worth pursuing or abandoning is really that feeling within you
2: Mm. that
1: you can tell just by tapping into that awareness. "Mm, This situation feels good let's continue or something doesn't feel right. That's the God within you talking. That is the manifestation of you being in partnership with existence. If you can feel something within you and you have that awareness that something's not right, that's a message.
2: Yeah.
0: And so I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, so when I started Box and Flow and, you know, my first studio in New York City on Banchi, my second studio, Spring Street, you know, the front doors of the space said, everything you need is inside this double entendre of like inside ourselves. And also, of course, in the space, and that's the title of this podcast. And it's sort of a tagline I carry with me. And I don't know that I understood the weight of that message until I started this work. So in your whole trajectory from, you know, Jay is six, seven years old, through life, through marriage, through children, through fashion designing, pivot into this psychedelic wellness consciousness, like... What do you think the through line really was of that self-trust that, you know, how do you interpret this message? Everything
1: you need is inside. It is a very good question and challenging to answer, but I'll I'll do my best. When you experience through these altered states of consciousness, non-duality, unity with the universe, Mm. it shows you what it's like to be in partnership with existence. You start to feel and see and experience what it's like to have the world as your oyster. Mm. You get to choose everything. Everything that you see is the creation of you. And so I had a lot of trouble when I was younger, especially with identity, especially with expectations, mostly expectations that I put on myself but maybe some expectations that others put on me as well. And when you start to shed those stories and get acquainted with who you really are underneath it all, underneath the have-tos, underneath the bullshit stories, underneath the expectations, underneath the ego, underneath the outfits and the masks and identities, JS fashion designer or businessman, man or entrepreneur, or a husband? What is your essence underneath all of it? And mm-hmm. these experiences show you almost universally that each and every one of us, our essence is joy and love and compassion and unity. And so I don't look at what I'm doing right now, entrepreneurial as you know, my next gig or my next job or my next thing that I'm investing in or running as a business, I look at it rather as it's my turn to really give back Mm -hmm. and to show people, you know, what I've been so fortunate to learn and to provide these medicines to people who are so great, you know, have such a great need for them. If you walk around and I spend a lot of time walking in New York City and you take a look at people, look at their eyes, look at their foreheads, look at their clenched jaws, look at, look at them and reflect upon, you can almost tell what people are going through. yeah. And it's probably suppression or repression of emotions. And so this work really allows people to get those emotions out and to stay out and to really deal with problems with equanimity and with grace, really, really a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, so sounds like the oneness is how you've learned, you know, to really go inside and, and honor the voice inside you matters, you know, I, that's what I'm taking from this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Look, the voice inside of you is. The universe. The, the, it is the universe. That is all there is and all there ever was. Right. And it's important that people get in touch with that. And they touch it and they experience it because life will never be the same again once you do.
0: I uh, don't, I know it. <laughs> I mean, my right. And as you said, you know, relationships change, you become a reflection of everything around you. Everything reflects back at you and it's hard to put into words even. So I think it's so beautiful that you found a way to create a space for people to experience themselves.
1: Yeah. You know, we had a a member come, there was a member who came up to me yesterday. She was on her fifth of six journeys and she was a therapist and with an eating disorder. And she came up to me and said, I just want to introduce myself. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. And I kind of stopped her and I said, well, what have we done? You've done the work.
2: Mm. You're
1: the one who decided to show up. You're the one who decided to take a look within yourself. You're the one who decided to take what you experienced and integrate it into your life. Yeah, okay. We provided a safe container to do so. And yes, we provided some integration to help you reframe certain stories that you might have been telling. But now it's time to celebrate you. And that's what this work is about.
0: And I love all of that. And I would also say it is about that. And I'm so grateful in my own journey that I found people that could hold me in this work too. And for you and what you've created, a place that is safe to be held. And I think that's really, really worth celebrating if I can celebrate you in that. So thank you. Thank you for your time. How can people find you? How do they find Nishama? tell us more.
1: Yes. So you can go to www.nushama, N-U-S-H-A-M-A.com on Instagram, Nushama Wellness or at Nushama Wellness, all one word. That's primarily where you can reach us. All the other information is on our website. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, This was such a pleasure. I love learning more. I hope you come to Austin next. I've never done ketamine personally, so You know, not that there aren't many places in Austin, but I would love to do it at (laughs) Nishama. Yeah,
1: well, you know, I love Austin. I was there a number of months ago to see the Rolling Stones. And that is one of America's most exciting developing cities. And as we talk about identities, it's a city that has an identity of its own. It's Mm -hmm. not trying to be the New York of Texas or the L.A. of Texas. It's really it's only trying to be Austin. Yeah, And I really, really loved it. It was so exciting to be there. And I'd love to open a new Shama there. And who knows, we might. Love it. Yeah,
0: I think the Keep Austin Weird thing, I think there's no accident that I moved here when I was deciding to be more of myself as Austin is only itself. So thank you.
1: Well, congratulations to you.
0: (laughs) you. (laughs) Thank you. I look forward to sharing this and uh, seeing where you go next.
1: Right on. Thanks, Olivia.
0: Of course. Thank you.